0: Hello, and welcome to an extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. My name is Mohud Malik, and I am the project's assistant at the Phelan U.S. Center. Today, I am joined by Dr. Navida Khan, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. In this extra inning, we discuss her 2023 book, In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South. In our conversation, we talk about loss and damage and the relationship between the Global North and the Global South when it comes to climate change. This book came about after eight years of field work at various UN-led Conference of the Parties, or COP sessions. Dr. Navita Khan joined me to provide insight on the state of our international frameworks to attempt to amplify the voices of the Global South while simultaneously creating a system that ensures the conversation on finding solutions to climate change does not end. Thank you so much for coming, um, and welcome to The Ballpark. We're here to discuss your recent book, your 2023 book, In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South. And in this book, it's based on the research that you've done in participating um, and observing the United Nations-led Conference of the Parties, or COP, which is what we often you know, think of them as. It, you, know, you hear COP24, COP25, and these different sort of iterations of this conference. But it'd be great, before we sort of go into detail about what you've learned in this process, for you to just sort of lay out what the Conference of the Parties are, You know, who attends these parties, in what ways does the Paris Agreement, for instance, fit within this framework? Because the Paris Agreement, when it first came about, a few years ago now, correct me if I'm wrong, was it 2015 or, yeah, it seemed like a very monumental breakthrough. So perhaps if you could just sort of map out all these different terms, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mohid, for having me on. And um, yeah, so, Just to quickly provide a a schematic history of the Conference of Parties. So, uh, you know, the United Nations had been hearing from various countries, particularly small island nations, that they were very worried about, uh, you know, rising temperatures and the impact it would have on the oceans and ocean rises, because their futures were therefore jeopardized. But it wasn't really yet language to talk about these things. They didn't call it climate change. They were talking about atmospheric commons, or they were talking about global warming was a, a term that was coming into salience and so on, right? Climate change as a concept really consolidated uh, quite late in the UN's imagination of what the problem was, right? And that what led to its consolidation was a decision To have a meeting involving all the countries of the world, sovereign countries of the world, uh, and having them think about how the atmosphere. Uh, have uh, the atmosphere as comments that they share amongst themselves, and what is their responsibility towards it. So the Rio conference in 1992 uh, was the first sort of major conference bringing the countries together. And again, it wasn't exclusively focused on climate change. It was also thinking about the loss of biodiversity and was also thinking about the fact that large parts of the world were experiencing drought and were moving towards desertification. And so out of of the 1992 uh, Rio conference uh, came out three large, uh, you know, framework conventions, big laws, right? Binding laws and uh, internationally binding laws, which means that they're not actually binding at the country level, but countries at an international level agreed that to, uh, to, uh, you know, uphold them as though they were binding. And so the three sorts of framework conventions, one had to do with Climate change, one biodiversity, and the other with desertification. So, actually, in a year, a meeting of all of the parties to the convention, to the framework conventions, uh, happens for all three of them. There are three COPs in a year. Uh, The COP, the climate change COP, it has just become very sexy and it's become the place to go and it's the place to be seen, etc. And so it gets a lot of the attention, right? But if you pay attention this past year, the conference on biodiversity happened in Toronto, right and i don't even know where the conference of parties on desertification happened just to let you know you know how obscure that one is so in a way um, you know climate was late to catch on it wasn't the only game in town there were other concerns as well and and uh, 1992 that rio convention really helped consolidate uh, the the un process by which climate was going to be one of their foci in terms of thinking about the planet and its resources and its sustainability for the future.
0: You referenced the small island nations, but in your book, you chose to specifically focus on Bangladesh. Um, and obviously Bangladesh, like many countries in the global south, the so-called global south, have a very almost, I would say like palpable relationship with climate change because it's it's one that's built on not having contributed much historically to. The situation that we're in, but obviously having to d- disproportionately bear the burdens of climate change. And we saw, I mean, we see it even now in terms of, you know, record heat waves and in, in many parts of, in, in those parts of the world. Last year, obviously in Pakistan, there was a lot of devastating flooding that happened. Why did you choose to focus on Bangladesh? And, and what were some of like the key takeaways that you took from Observing the Bangladeshi delegation from, I believe it was from COP 21 to COP 25, um, which I think is 2015 to 2019. Um, so within that time period, you know, what, what was it that you, that you observed, that you learned from how a developing nation sort of maneuvers at these conferences?
1: you know one of the, the you had asked me also about who attends these uh, conferences mm. and also what was the paris agreement's relationship to it and i think in answering those i might be able to also answer your question as to why bangladesh what is bangladesh doing here a, in this conference space and what does it have to gain from it right so um so the conference of parties is Um, you know, again, as I said, a UN-led process or three trifold process of which climate change is one of the processes uh, the conference of parties just refers to the fact that all the countries that are parties to the Framework Convention on climate change are having a conference right so that's a conference of those parties now what's interesting about the Rio conference that happened in 1992 is that it was really sort of like um, a crossroads for the U.S and for major industrialized countries, the countries that had already undertaken, you know, industrial revolution and were really way ahead of the curve in terms of um their development, right? They were really at a crossroads there. They could choose to think of climate change as a Western produced problem and really uh, go about trying to change their economies accordingly, right? Through emissions reductions, etc. Or they could really emphasize the fact that it was a global problem, that even though it had been started by industrialization in the West, now industrialization was the pathway for a lot of other countries that were still coming up at the time, uh, Brazil, India, China, so on. And that uh, uh, the smaller countries, even though uh, they were not involved in the in the early industrial processes or they were late to catching on to the development uh, opportunities, uh, they were going to experience the fallouts of that because climate war really was a holistic system and so climate change was going to holistically affect everybody, Right. So that was a really interesting crossroads, because if they had gone the way of industrialized countries, then, you know, countries like Bangladesh, uh, India, so on, would have not heard anything about it, there would have been all the necessary checks and balances, laws, uh, agencies, regulatory bodies, etc, cases, legal cases, and so on. And it would have been sort of dealt with in the industrialized corner of the world, the first world corner of the world, however you want to characterize it, right, the global north uh, more recently. So anyway, the point is that, you know, by deciding to make climate a global problem in 1992, in effect, it brought all the countries on board. Right. And at the early stage, the understanding was that industrialized countries were going to take the leadership in terms of making the necessary changes to their economies, etc. But that eventually developing countries as they got bigger and were more responsible for uh, emissions would also have to take on some responsibility and that even poorer countries, vulnerable countries, um, so that they would feel ownership over this process should feel that they can contribute, although it wasn't obligatory for them. It was entirely voluntary for the small island nations, for the least developed countries, for African nations, and so on, right? So in effect, at that point, a decision was made to involve all these countries. And that is why countries like India, China, Brazil, uh, you know, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, and so on have been uh, eagerly a part of this process because they want to make sure that they don't get left with the burden of having to mitigate for what they think as historical emissions, right? And then the industrialized countries have gotten very invested in the process because, as they feel more economically threatened by like China and India and so on, they don't want to lose out their competitive edge by having to Take on all the burden of mitigating, right? And so this is what's brought all the countries to the COPs to make sure that, you know, they are both treating climate as a holistic problem, both acknowledging the fact that, you know, their historical emissions and then their emergent emissions, right? But at the same time, also making sure that they don't get burdened with having to take on uh, more than their fair share of mitigation goals, right? And so that's why countries like Bangladesh are even here at this space, which they have no business doing, because really, they can't make radical changes to the economy. Like, for instance, you know, Iceland can, or, you know, Germany can, or, and so on, right? So, um, so that that's part of it. And then the other part of it is, why do they stay? Like, if they're here, and are blocks that are representing their interests, such as least developed countries as a block, and it has like, you know, president, etc., why do they even come? Why do they send their delegates from, say, the Ministry of, uh, of uh, Agriculture, Ministry of Planning, Ministry of Environment and Climate Change and Forest, et cetera? Why do these people even come? And I think part of it is that, and that's a part of the spectacle part of the COP, right, is that the COP is draws so many different constituencies and it draws in, it's been very, very... Um, pro-business and pro-private sector uh, investment in the solutions to climate change. So for countries like Bangladesh, it's also an opportunity to see what kinds of relationships they can build with other countries bilaterally or uh, create investment opportunities in their own country and so on. So it's not a very sanguine process in the sense that the process is not just singularly focused on taking care of climate change. It's also about making sure that countries feel invested in the process, that they can keep coming. Their sovereignties are extremely protected. Uh, There's no, uh, there's nothing binding. Everything is voluntary. And uh, in addition, it serves as a meeting space for like say civil society activists, but as well as for private sectors and countries interested in the private sectors.
0: So with this sort of like confluence of actors, to what extent are these conferences sites of cooperation and sites of contestation? You know, because I, you know, obviously you you want to have these conferences for productive outcomes, but I am curious, you know, from your experiences there, when you do have such a div- diverse group of actors coming together, not, you know, obviously you have the private sector, you have these activists, you then have countries of very different, economic and 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 social backgrounds. Um, you know, how do you even begin to build consensus on on this kind of issue?
1: So I mean that was really that's a brilliant question because that's exactly the question that I was sort of compelled by when I first got there. my first conference was twenty fifteen. COP mm-hmm. twenty one, sorry, uh, yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> the numbering system is very logical; it follows an order that the UN sets down. But the proliferation of it is crazy. Anyway, uh, COP twenty one in two thousand fifteen was important because you know the Paris Agreement uh, was launched there, and I couldn't really figure out what the big deal was, right? Because from what I was reading in the Paris Agreement or the decision text that was coming out, everything was voluntary right prior to mm-hmm. that we had the kyoto protocol the kyoto protocol was very very formulaic it's sort of like you know countries had to submit their um, an overall profile of their economy and their carbon emissions and based on a formula they were told how much they had to reduce Their uh, mitigations by and over what time period. And if they didn't, then they were given a further burden, you know, so there was a clear penalty system. Even though, of course, this being international law, nothing is legally binding. There's no international government and police force that's going to make it happen. It's all done by agreement, agreement mm-hmm. to make it binding for yourself. Anyway, the point is that Kyoto had these clear guidelines and Paris was like entirely voluntary. Every year you submit or every so many years you submit what you think your nationally determined contributions are going to be, NDCs, right? Yeah. and uh, and then. Uh, you submit follow-up reports saying to what extent you did meet your own self-set goals. And, you know, there's so many countries and so many reports, the the UN took a certain time to go through the reports, right? And then the countries would meet to talk to each other saying, why didn't you meet your uh, goal, et cetera, et cetera, the global stock take, you know, and facilitative dialogues, they're called. Anyway, the point is that, I was asking myself the same question like, how is anything, how does anything get done here? And what gets mm-hmm. done? Right. Yeah. Um- what you have to realize, and maybe this is not unique to the UNFCCC, I don't study the UN more widely, and the UN has many, many organizations, many, many processes, you know, uh, that are going on uh, at different parts of the world uh, simultaneously. So I don't know if I am making this out to be stranger than it is, right? But in the UNFCCC, the whole point of the C and the COP meetings is to actually actually educate people to be in conversation it's not to actually arrive at any meaningful action it's to keep people in conversation because in every other part of the of a country's um, you know uh, domains right there's competition economic mm-hmm. competition competition over education and uh, competition over trade right all sorts of uh, you know uh, Very conflictual relationships also exist. Just think about the relationship between Russia and the West right now, you know, and so uh, the UNFCCC process is really to make sure that you can keep all of those things at home or in the international stage. But when you come here, you're only really thinking about climate change. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's its effort is to keep people coming back and saying, yeah, whatever we might do in other domains here, we are talking about an existential threat to all of humanity. Right. Even just getting people to agree to that. right? Right. It takes a lot of effort. That's the first. And then the second is, of course, uh, creating the protocols by which they can speak to each other without just like losing it or, you know, putting their own country's interests first every single time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's also about learning to uh, negotiate, learning to be diplomatic, learning to um, learning to give a little and so on. Right. And then climate is not one thing. I mean, it's consolidated as one thing in our head. It's like, you know, the temperature or. Uh, it has to do with, uh, you know, um, the loss of permafrost or with the ice caps, et cetera, right? But in the negotiations, climate is about 15 different things. So every room, there is a different set of negotiations going on, right? In one room, it is about, do you, um, uh, do you see the need for adaptation, If so, what should Mm -hmm. we be doing? Right. Another room, it is do you see the need for mitigation? How fast should we mitigate? Right. Right. A third one is okay, so uh, poor countries don't have the ability to mitigate. What do we give them in terms of technology, capacity, uh, finances? Right. Finance Mm -hmm. is really fraught, so it has its own room. Right. Now there's thing called loss and damage, it gets its own room. So there are negotiations going on across all of these. And it takes an incredible amount of orchestration to make sure that they're synchronized, right, that they're always brought in. So room five, they made a decision about how quickly, you know, uh, people will provide their NDCs, how does that impact, you know, how quickly mitigation can happen here in this room, you know, so Mm -hmm. this is what the process is about. It's about you know, uh, proliferating uh, climate so that people are not talking about one thing, they're talking about 15 different things. And on 15 different things, they can come to an agreement, <laughs> right? right. In a so, it's, <laughs> so,
0: so it's almost like it acts as a way to provide a language, like a common language yes. for, for, for the different delegations to draw upon
1: language, comic tactics, and right. eventually, hopefully, common goals.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. And and to what extent? A very
1: long-term process.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. It is. Um. To what extent do you feel that there's a it's it's it does provide sort of like a level playing field because with a lot of international platforms it's hard to truly accept that every country and actor that's there is sort of seen at, you know, at at an equal level as everyone else, right? I mean, obviously, we think of certain institutions, we know that's not the case, right? Whether it's the IMF or the World Bank, obviously, that's separate to this. But um, I, I am curious to know, from your own insights, how are these countries, these, you know, from the global south, let's just, let's just use that term, you know, how are they sort of Seen because sometimes you know when I when I when I read into it it does almost feel as if they're just seen um, at least some of them as more of a nuisance than anything else you know I I know um, a couple of weeks ago for instance John Kerry said that the U S will never you know we're not going to pay climate reparations like that's that's just not a that's just not something we're going to talk about loss and damage is something we can look at and I know that that's that's a very particular language right that wish we, we can unpack. Um, but this is this is very long winded, but I suppose m- my point is, you know, in the last COP in Cairo, climate reparations was something that really came to the forefront in a way that I don't really think has been the case, at least from my own readings. Please do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and there's so there's there's that that's that's happening. And then on the other hand, you know, you talked about NDCs and you talked about Um, countries coming up with their own sort of, you know, this is our nationally determined that, you know, these are the emissions that we have to reduce. But of course, a lot of these developed countries export their emissions to the global south, right? And that doesn't, I don't think, figures within their NDCs. Um, So there seems to be this like mismatch between, on the one hand, um, countries in the global north that from the outside look like they get to control the narrative and countries in the global south that sort of have to react to this is the language that we have to deal with um so to first of all is that true like are countries in the global south sort of just reacting to you know these languages like loss and damage and and what have you or do they actually have quite a bit of agency um at these conferences to enact change i know that was very long-winded um so just you know go at that as you'd like
1: uh, so essentially, when the process started, as I told you, I keep going back to 92 because it was seems to me such a crucial time, right? Where things could have gone so differently. I mean, of course hindsight is 2020 better, uh, but you know, uh, essentially it it did one good thing it did was that it did bring all the parties on board and they were on board as equal partners, right. So for example, in a room, A vote from, uh, you know, Gabon counts the same as a vote from the US, right? So there's that kind of leveling that's happening in terms of uh, voting. Right. Or, um, of course, you know, this is a process that works by consensus. So even if you do vote on things, uh, they're only temporary votes. So ultimately, everybody has to be in agreement. Right. So and there's a reason mm-hmm. for that, but I don't want to go into that right now. Um, so so, you know, in that sense, you know, it is a level playing field. It is a field where uh, poor countries, vulnerable countries feel like they can come. And they can exert some pressures on countries which uh, entirely dictate the terms of their existence in other other domains, right? Just trade and loans and so on, right? Debt and so on. So in a way, the the story is a little bit reversed. The narrative is that, you know, uh, the industrialized world owes a debt to the rest of the world, right? And As opposed to the other kind of debt language that prevails everywhere else, where it's the poorer countries that are indebted to the richer ones, so on. So there's that. For better or for worse, countries, poorer countries have used this as a leverage, right? They have used this as leverage to sometimes block uh, climate uh, negotiations uh, in order to enable other kinds of, uh, of opportunities for themselves, right? Uh, at other times, um, you know, they've leveraged it in order to uh, block, you know, text from industrialized or the Western world, which is uh, antithetical to their own advantages, right? So in a way, you know, uh, this, this particular space is one where they have felt empowered to act as a collective, G77 in China has historically represented the global south and but there are also many other blocks within it you know alba and ilac which are latin american groups and then um, you know basic which is the larger developing countries then uh, a very interesting one called lmdc uh, which is really countries that keep reminding about uh, about third world solidarity and about the need to uh, remember, you know, colonialism or keep colonialism in the picture and so on. Um, and so, you know, in this space, I think that they have felt um in, uh, empowered to get into these sorts of groupings, to exert pressure against the industrialized West, or to block negotiations to facilitate other kinds of favorable conditions, etc. Uh, treaties, and so on. But the uh, but the historically, what has happened is that you know this is a huge diplomatic game, and you must have people who know the terms of diplomacy. Who know how to write text, who know how to sound a certain way, who know how to lodge a complaint, who know how to be put their hand up, etc. Everything involves a kind of protocol and you know these countries don't have uh, that kind of uh, capacity right and so what is intended to happen is in the past uh, when the meet conferences would happen uh, there were always pre-conferences regional pre-conferences there's nothing you know behind the scenes about it but in the regional um, pre-conferences you know the bigger countries would come together and say let's get a jump start on the COP meeting let's just create some text Right? And so then you're in a position of just reacting to the text saying, I wasn't there when this text was created and then going line by line saying, I prefer the inclusion of this or the exclusion of this, etc. But what happens is that with loss and damage, is that it's the first time that, you know, all these smaller countries that have generally kind of uh, squabbled amongst each other or had different orientations, for example, the small island nations has been much more mitigation focused, whereas uh, African nations or least developed countries, more adaptation because they're used to a development framework and adaptation fits into that, whereas mitigation, what are they going to mitigate? Whereas for the small island nations surrounded by like, like, you know, Australia, this and that, you know, they want mitigation. And so they haven't always seen eye to eye the smaller countries, uh, vulnerable countries. So at this stage, they all got together, and they started to have like, profound numbers of meetings and conversations, and they got, you know, they bought expertise to write text, etc. And that was what was unusual about loss and damage, not that, um, you know, climate reparations were suddenly on the table, but that uh, the poorer countries came with text to the uh, conference, right? And that uh, created a tailspin. And uh, for the industrialized countries, it was a realization that, you know, everybody has a right to create text. Right. And uh, and so in a way, loss and damage is profoundly important because that text was introduced by uh, the Global South, as it were, and then was finally included as a pillar of climate action within the Paris Agreement. Um, It's Article 8, I believe. Yeah. So, um, but in terms of reparations, I mean, uh, for its inclusion to happen, I mean, there's always so much backdoor stuff happening at these conferences, and they've managed to actually systematize all of it. It's called, you know, you've got your uh, uh, plenaries, right? Then you've got your informal consultations, then you've got your informal informals, then you've got your, you know, hallway meetings. I mean, these are actual categories of meetings, right? And so these things are happening all the time and are considered very legitimate and necessary because for diplomacy to work, one country has to be able to put pressure on another country, but not do it in public, you know, so because sovereignty is at stake, etc. So in this way, America was brought around with the promise that uh, uh, loss and damage would never amount to reparations. Right? Uh, that loss and damage was only to be considered from, the, uh, from uh, 2015 onwards, right? So no historic loss and damage, only things that uh, were willfully done after the facts of science, after climate negotiations processes had already started, right? So it's a very short uh, window of opportunity for loss and damage, right? And that is why you don't see uh, countries talking about extraction that happened 100 years ago that's been detrimental to their ecosystems and to their public health, etc., Those things don't appear within this space. What happens most often is, for example, a Peruvian farmer filing a case against the big electrical company, Riwe in Germany. Right. And uh, and there being enough German lawyers and activists involved in helping the Peruvian farmer to fight uh, to bring this case to the German courts. Right. But that, you know, uh, the electrical company you know, uh, has only been in operation, say, for a short period of time, and the science of attribution is only so good. And so to make a link between, you know, loss of ice in Peru to uh, this German electrical company takes a lot of effort, right? A lot of science lot of legal finessing, right? And so that has only just been enabled. So reparations in that older sense of reparations for for colonialism, reparations for extractivism, neo-colonialism, etc. I'm not sure that we'll see through this process, right? Um, However, you know, people who've been involved in loss and damage in the process, they've done two things. One is that they wanted to institute it as a pillar within the uh, Paris Agreement. And two, they also wanted to make it into a... what do they call it? A mechanism, right? And what a mechanism means within this process is that it has to have sort of like science, you know, the uh, collection of uh, of empirical evidence, but also has to have a finance behind it, right? So they're hoping, and that's what were, came through in Cairo is the finance mechanism part of it was finally agreed to. They had always agreed to the science part of loss and damage, which was the Warsaw in, uh, mechanism on loss and damage whim, right? And all that did was just gather information, tell you stuff that you already kind of knew, but in a more systematic way, and then looked at all market options, like all forms of insurance schemes, et cetera, by which you could protect yourself from some of the extremes of weather. But, you know, uh, one tornado, one hurricane, far exceeded anything any insurance company could ever pay out to a country. Right. So it wasn't really being effective, whereas now with the agreement to the finance mechanism, countries have putatively agreed to pool money so that if there is any sort of calamity in a part of the world where the um, region is not capable of uh, of self-sustaining after the fact, then some money will come out of this mechanism to help them. Right. so that was the big win. But again, it's not reparations. Uh, for reparations, what's going to have to happen is the international uh, courts of justice will have to get involved. Uh, international legislature will have to get involved. Everybody will have to start suing the hell out of everybody else yeah. for that to happen. You know, Right.
0: So. And I guess in your... Um, I have two questions, but just to go off of that last point, because when I think of your title, In Quest of a Shared Planet... Um, you know, it there's there's two ways that I look at that. One is the sort of more, like, anthropogenic way of, like, this is our planet that we are, you know, living in as a species that we share and we have to take care of it. Um, and then there's also, to me, um, sort of, you know, like, the imposed political, um, you know, understanding of that title where it's, like, we also have to share these mechanisms of finding solutions, right? Which I guess is, you know, what we call diplomacy. Um, And so in trying to balance uh, like these two, um, I guess, sides of that title and trying to bring about diplomatic solutions, do you think it's even, um, because of just how much work would have to go into even thinking about bringing about climate reparations, you know, from, from, from documenting it to actually arbitrating it, um, do you think it's even something that countries in the global South should actively pursue, or do you think it actually probably does more damage than it does any good because it perhaps just creates greater cleavages and it and it doesn't, you know, engender the sort of um, the sort of work that needs to be done to to actually to you know to bring about effective change, I suppose, you know, like how how much Can climate reparations actually enable us to be forward-looking, I suppose?
1: That's a very, very tough question because, you know, climate reparation is everybody's right. I mean, they're uh, in the sense that, you know, colonialism was so long and sustained and so violent, uh, you know, over large parts of the world that, you know, uh, to uh, To treat these countries as underdeveloped is so to depoliticize the the conditions of their possibility. Yeah. So there's that. Um, on the other hand, you know, and I I I think that you know, if climate reparations fields on principle to be the right thing to do um, for constituencies, for countries, for groups or whatever, they should find ways of pursuing it. There's there's no need to think that this process, the UN process, is the end all and be all of climate action. (laughs) I actually think climate action has to proliferate in so many ways. It has to be so heterogeneous, even if it is sometimes across purposes. I mean, that fee, that concern with centralizing action, et cetera, is not going to get us anywhere fast. So I think uh, a serious proliferation of lots of different actions is necessary because we don't understand what puts pressure on what, Right. So, for instance, I heard Noam Chomsky once speak about the fact that America keeps going on about how it's the land of the free, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, civil rights were some of the most violently fought rights. Right. I mean, it was not nobody gave it to people uh, easily, didn't give up on their privileges, in fact, uh, right back to reclaim those privileges. Right. Youth activism, you know, uh, is has had to be very sustained right in the U.S., to make a climate or to make divestment a thing, you know, so I think, and that kind of thing does put pressure, it puts pressure on university presidents, it puts pressure on, uh, you know, congressmen, etc. Uh, and then uh, shows up in interesting ways within the climate space. So one really doesn't know right? So I think the only way to deal with this process is to do many things at once. I mean, I'm not an activist for violent action, right? But I am an activist, uh, I am an advocate for very large scale collective actions. I really think that it's the only way to put pressure on these countries, you know? Uh, uh, You know, I don't know if you read science fiction, but uh, the Kim Stanley Robinson has a book called Ministry of the Future right now. And it is really interesting because it is talking about the next step beyond the COP process, where something called the Ministry of the Future has been created to which all countries are are in agreement that it'll be a ministry of presiding over all of them. Uh, in terms of how to talk, think about their banks, their economies, their technologies, etc. But a big street that runs through that novel is violent action. You know, action against uh, coal mining, action against, uh, you know, dirty energy projects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You know, this is him fictionalizing. But that's the one thing that we don't have. And we've had certain intimations of it with Extinction Rebellion, right? But so far, it has been actually quite polite and quite diplomatic, you know, even as though even if they're not within the process, and they're in the outskirts and marginalized, it's been, it's been quite... Um, it's been quite sincere and uh, and peaceful. So I think that, you know, countries will have to, at some point, start worrying about the possibility of not just collective action, but violence if uh, they don't do anything, you know? Right. So like a dark note, but. No, you know. of course.
0: I mean, but. Even if it's not purposeful violence, I mean, we know climate change contributes to insecurity. Um, and it and it does have a direct link to increasing conflict. Um, so you know it's not even I think that some so much of it is not even about you, know, I don't think you even need someone to rally up anybody. I think if you know, if we just continue on a certain path, then um that conflict will 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 make itself present. Um, I do um just have two Last questions. One just has to concern with the US because, um, obviously, under President Donald Trump, the US did withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Um, I know it then (laughs) came back, but, um, I do find that sort of withdrawal and then re entry to be kind of interesting in terms of, you know, when we think about the effectiveness of these agreements. Um, I do want to know, you know, do you have sort of any, um, you know like what are your views on the United States's role in particular when it comes to COP meetings when it comes to tackling climate change as given the the power that the United States holds you know culturally economically and and politically
1: So you know when uh, Trump uh, threatened and then subsequently withdrew or set in motion the application to withdraw from uh, the Paris Agreement uh, what was interesting is that he didn't yet withdraw from the uh, UNFCCC, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which meant that the US continued to pay into the UNFCCC for into its workings, but that the country withdrew from just the the aspect, the agreement which is one, only one arm of the UNFCCC, right? So right. this is kind of behavior that uh, leads the US to be seen sometimes as a rogue nation because it gives itself the power and the authority to just withdraw from like global agreements, right? And this is the second time it did that. The first time was George W. Bush and Kyoto, Mm-hmm. Right? He withdrew from Kyoto and uh, and from uh, taking on any binding emission reduction targets, which then led to its uh, collapse. Right. I mean, he's not the sole cause of the collapse, but it initiated that process. So what I'm saying is that in the process, the U.S. has this really two faced nature, which is it can give itself the authority to just like step away from internationally binding agreements. Right. Which shows it to be not a a play, uh, uh, you know, doing it in good um, in um. What is the word? Doing it sincerely, being right. being insincere and therefore flirting with the aspect of it being, uh, you know, like a rogue nation. But on the other hand, it it feels a responsibility that it is one of the richer countries. And, you know, if it doesn't pay into the UN, into the UNFCCC, then the very workings of the process will collapse. Right. So it's mm. a very double edged game that the U.S. is always playing, which is that it allows the process to continue through a substantial amount of financial um, burden that it carries for its administrative costs, et cetera, but will withdraw from some of the more political decisions, agreements that are made. And so this is what has led the process to be kind of vulnerable, because mm-hmm. they need the U.S. both for its stature, its size, its, uh, you know, size of its economy, the amount it contributes to emissions, etc., And it needs the country for financial purposes, right? And so it can't entirely come out and condemn the U.S. when the U.S. steps away or withholds its reputation from the political action because of this other reliance, right?
0: Right. And so
1: it keeps... U.S. kind of central to the process, right, in a way that's not always healthy for the process. For example, stepping back a little might spur um, the European unions to have a bit more of the countries in the European Union to have a bit more of a backbone and not to always take the U.S.'s lead or, for instance, China to step up to be more of a a global player as opposed to doing uh, the right things maybe in the home, but, you know, showing a really defensive mode in the process, you know. So in a way, this space hasn't really enabled that kind of leadership outside of the political that we already know, that we're already familiar with. So that's been a problem. But another way that the US is really interestingly involved is that You know, U.S. uh, subnationals, cities, municipalities, uh, U.S. uh, 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 civil society, activists, youth, etc. You know, as soon as Trump stepped away from this process, this is not a process that they were necessarily thrilled with in the U.S. The U.S. was trying to do its own thing, right? Everybody stepped in, right? I mean, there was just like... Uh, all this effort, you know, uh, kids from school, colleges, etc., activists, organizations, cities, etc., just like redoubling their relations to the UN, right? So right. in a way, just again speaks to this very interesting nature of the u s. which is that what happens in the top is not necessarily replicated faithfully at all the other levels that them uh, other levels also retain a kind of power to operate independently of the top, right? right. I mean, right. as you see that with California, but you also see that with Florida, you know, like totally yeah, study yeah. In Congress, right? So yeah.
0: uh, right. Thank you. Um. Obviously, we were here to primarily talk about your book In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South. And I just thought as a final question, it'd be, and you probably have touched upon it, but perhaps to make it more explicit, could you perhaps just share one or two key takeaways that you took in writing this book and what this book and what this research has sort of informed about what we can look Forward to in terms of a future and, and 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 our quest of a shared planet, um, you know, could you maybe discuss that a little bit?
1: Great. Yeah, thank you. I mean, first of all, I do want to thank you for your double reading of the title. I hadn't yeah. actually <laughs> that, which was very nice, which is there's both an aspirational quality, like, you know, how do we as a species come to recognize our coexistence with each other, but also with other species, but also the fact that it has this armature of like, this is the protocol by which we're going to do this, like the shared mm-hmm. governance structure And I think you're totally right that there is both of those qualities within the UNFCCC, which I wanted to draw out. One, that there was just a huge amount of investment in the process, emotional, intellectual, you know, financial, political investment in making the process work, which suggests this aspiration to be a a community of nations. States, not such a conflictual com- community, but one more, you know, uh, collaborative. In at least in the face of a, a shared challenge but on the other hand it also still has that history of uh, geopolitics of of colonialism etc that structure uh, the situation uh, in ways that are uh, not directly addressed by the process and the process doesn't have the scope to address for example climate reparations and so on right so so it's to both talk about the fact that, you know, we need a understanding and knowledge of the process we can't just brush it away saying oh it's just another us uh, un process right procedural fussy bureaucratic etc but that there is actual real work of stitching countries together going on here right but whether it's sufficient to actually deal with the material impacts of climate change at the pace at which it's happening i'm not sure that we really need to uh, bear down on many, many different uh, active actions at once, right? Instead of uh, instead of not overdoing this difference between individual state or structural, just have it be everything at once, you know, I can't see any other way to, uh, I can't see any other satisfactory way to like, you know, it has to be some sort of spark that just is like a feedback loop, you know, creates a feedback loop. And that's, That's what, you know, and this process only one part of that, right? So if we can just recognize it for what it is, and then um, invest that much energy into it, but also invest our energies into proliferating actions, then I think we are in a better situation. Yeah, all I wanted to say was that the process is worth learning about. It's worth uh, engaging in, but you can't invest. You can't invest all of yourself into it because you will be disappointed. Right, that because if you have any kind of uh activist politics, the fact of private uh the private sector being all over it is going to disturb you, right? If you have any concerns that countries' sovereignties are doing damage to the sovereignties of the indigenous populations living in those countries, this process will disappoint you, right? So instead of going into it, investing too much importance, knowing just what it does right and while proliferating all the other actions i think that's the best approach as opposed yeah. to dismissing it entirely either
0: right so it's more so about recognizing it for what it is and, yes. and rather than sort of imposing your own um visions of what you'd want it to be
1: yes yes right. yes, yes that's fair. Yes, absolutely. Because I find so many people say, oh, it's terrible. It's not what I had expected, right? Or people to say things like, you know, the local is all that matters. This is all too out there and abstract. And I think both of those are really actually not very smart responses, right? right? You have to know what's going on here. There are a lot of people doing hard work here. So at least acknowledge some of that while also critiquing it, while also also maintaining the need for attending to other scales and other issues you know so
0: thank you to dr Navida khan for joining us on this extra inning of the ballpark to listen to all our previous episodes just enter lse ballpark into your search engine of choice you'll find us we're free to listen to and unlike lots of other podcasts we're ad free We'd also love to hear what you think about the show. So email us any feedback you have at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. Or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore US. And please, if you'd like, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan US Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.